Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Editor's Desk with me, Felicity Duncan, and Alec Hug. David Constable, Alec, is a, uh, a member of the, uh, former member rather, of the, the Cecil board and uh, has been making some interesting corporate moves and leaving some chaos in his wake. It's a strange story. Do you want to fill us in a little bit about what, uh, what's been happening there and what you think uh, is the situation? Well, Felicity, it is a strange story, and it's one that the Cecil board and indeed any Cecil shareholder should be very interested in. David Constable was appointed. He's a he's a Canadian um, who has spent had spent his whole career with uh, Fleur Corporation, which is a big engineering group uh, based in North America, and he was headhunted by the Sassel team to come as chief executive um, some years ago. He arrived uh, like a whirlwind, made some investments into fracking projects in North America. Uh, which went wrong and cost a lot of money. He then also uh, made the decision to build the new Sassel head office in Santon, which incidentally had a private lift for him to go to his executive suite. Uh, then he, uh, which which kind of also raises a few uh, a few signals, he was the highest paid chief executive in South Africa by some margin because of clearly the deal that he managed to negotiate. But what is really distressing is that he went off to, or he went into a uh, project in North America, which was the biggest foreign investment of the time into Louisiana in a place called Lake Charles to build this mega chemicals company, um, a chemicals plant rather. And the project management managers were floor corporations. So his old company that he'd left uh, then got the biggest project. They have made an absolute mess of it. Sassel's share price has halved in the last year as the uh, overruns, the cost overruns of this project have become apparent. It's now looking at $13 billion. They started off around eight. Uh, it's of the overruns of the uh, order of Madupi and Kusili, and we know about all the controversy that's been around those two Eskom power plants. And lo and behold, after David Constable is effectively booted out of Sassel, where does he land up? On the board of directors of Fleur Corporation. So, yeah, I don't really want to go into casting any aspersions on things that I know nothing about, but it really bothers me that uh, there is this linkage, there's this uh, joining of the dots, which to anybody at Sassel must be really concerning. And at the very least, Fleur Corporation should be answering uh, a, a lot of tough questions on what went wrong with that whole project. Now, we do know that Sassel have had to postpone their financial results twice. They have got an internal team that's investigating what was the reason behind the cost overruns. But if you've got a, a, a project manager that you've outsourced to, and they are supposedly looking after the key parts of a big project like this, and if they've made a mess to the degree that they have, then you need to bring them to account. It'll be interesting to see how this whole thing plays out. Fascinating, and really does raise some serious corporate governance concerns. You have to ask yourself, um, where was the board in scrutinizing these kinds of behaviors and these decisions? 
um, which, I mean, is a question we've been asking about a growing number of companies, isn't it? Uh, I'm thinking here in particular, of course, about WeWork, um, which did a really spectacular, I don't even want to say fall from grace because it never really was uh, in the good graces of the public market, was it? Never got the opportunity to do that. Um, but certainly a fall from the stratosphere, uh, which we have detailed, of course, up on the website. There's a good coverage of it from both uh, our side and Brand Premium, and then there's also some Wall Street Journal coverage. And one of the big problems, among the many big problems there, was uh, corporate governance issues and concerns about the way that the board was structured, the way that management was structured, the way that voting rights were structured, and so forth. But this is just one example of companies, huge, enormous uh, private companies uh, called unicorns, right, private companies with rate, uh, valuations rather of over a billion dollars that have gone public with a lot of fanfare or tried to go public in the case of WeWork and have crashed and burned once they hit public markets. There's a lot of examples of these lately. I'm thinking here about both Uber and Lyft, which have seen their share prices fall, you know, in the order of 30 or 40 percent um, since their listings on the back of continued massive cash burn, huge uh, losses and business models that really aren't necessarily very tech driven, but are more like uh, other traditional businesses. Uh, then we saw the, the essentially the cancellation of the WeWork IPO and uh, Peloton, which is the, you know, the the. I'm not sure if you know the company, but they sell these very expensive stationary bikes. And then there's a subscription to their um, exercise classes that goes with it. So their model is in, you know, they're the Netflix of exercise bicycles, I suppose, um, which they, they uh, listed and they hit their target price at the listing. But the share price uh, on the day of the IPO just plunged again. And um, another one that's a really big loss-making company. So we're seeing a lot of things flaming out when they hit private uh, public markets. And I think personally, I think it's a good thing. Well, it's interesting. I know the WeWork story very well, having been a member and uh, been completely swept away by the business model, by the people who were there. You don't have to sign up a long lease. It's a month-to-month uh, a rental agreement that you have. It's extremely flexible as a result of that. You get to use some of the facilities or the most the facilities are, are shared. So, for instance, you can use their meeting rooms uh, by paying a little amount or what's part of your credit. The community managers that I dealt with at WeWorks in London were r- simply superb. And I really loved, as a client, I loved the business. I loved where we were. But as a uh, as a journalist, it was extremely difficult to get anything out of these guys now, uh, and that should have waved uh, a, a lot of flags early on. I I went along to a a discussion a me, um, that was held at a WeWorks um, for a a rugby club, and uh, in fact, with my pal Bob Skinstead, uh, who um, was was one of the speakers at this. So I went along, listened to Bob, chatted with him afterwards. And also, as part of this rugby club, what they did was they had a uh, the, the sponsor of it, of the evening got to say a few words, and the sponsor, the person there, as it was at WeWork, was the uh, the the manager of WeWork for I think for London or Europe. Anyway, she was quite quite uh, senior. And after that, I spoke to her very briefly and said, it'd be great to do an interview with you. I know we are keen um, to have you in South Africa, and I know there'd been discussions um, with between WeWork and coming into South Africa. And at the time, she agreed, and it was impossible, 
impossible to set up that interview thereafter. Uh, they did not want to talk. Even the the PR person to the PR person was not available to uh, engage with me at all. And I found that rather strange for a company that had such a high profile. I wasn't asking to speak to Adam Neumann or anybody. This was someone quite a long way down the totem pole. And it was a you know, pretty basic kind of interview. Anyway, uh, then they came to South Africa and opened up in Cape Town and in Johannesburg in Rosebank. And when we visited Rosebank, because clearly having had the experience in London, I was very keen to do a repeat uh, over here and to see if we could do something together. But the the people, uh, the person I met anyway, and I must hasten to add, it's not the recently appointed CEO here in South Africa, who I know very well, Stafford Marcy, but it was one of the people there. They came with this incredibly arrogant attitude of, well, take it or leave it and charging the earth for the uh, for the space that was on offer. And, of course, there was no way that we were interested in doing that. So, again, there were all kinds of alarm bells that were ringing. Uh, now we see that the governance of the company is appalling and that uh, Mr. – well, the, the co-founder, Adam Neumann, cashed in – we know this – cashed in $700 million of his equity – uh, a couple of months ago, ahead of the IPO, which is now completely collapsed, and the public market saying, we're not prepared to invest in this company. It's a lot of hype. It isn't, as you said earlier, a tech company. It's maybe a new way of uh, offering office space, but the risks of doing that are a little bit like when you are funding mortgage bonds as a bank with short-term money. It looks good when short-term money is cheap, but when short-term money rises – uh, and you lending out long term, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble, as many of the mortgage banks did in the past. In this case, what they do at WeWork is they take out long term leases on buildings and they've got forty seven billion dollars of liabilities in that. But they allow those people who come in and rent to rent on a month to month basis. So the risk that's involved here is extremely high. And the public markets have said we're not prepared to tolerate it. At the valuations you're putting at the company, which was around $50 billion, we are prepared to maybe give you one-fifth of that, $10 billion. And, of course, that has caused uh, a knock-on effect, which, uh, which has been all over the global media in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, it's very encouraging to see public markets really acting as the smart money, which to me is to say, well, I see what your actual – real underlying business model is, how profitable is that likely to be in the long term? So to what extent, if I put cash into this business, to what extent am I going to see my cash come back to me over the long term in the form of either, you know, capital growth or distributions? Um, and I think that's, you know, really what you want to be doing when you're assessing something. And to see the public market applying the bucket of ice cold water to these private valuations is, is a positive thing because because of the um, widespread availability of easy money, you've seen a lot of funds flowing into businesses that are not necessarily providing significant economic value. Um, I read an excellent assessment of Uber, which was talking about um, just transportation and taxis in general and the extent to which Uber had actually really dramatically changed the model of how taxis operate to create greater economic value. So obviously that would, in the case of taxis, mean making rides cheaper, right? Because, and, and 
And in reality, if you break down all the costs associated with Uber, I mean, they've certainly made it more convenient. No one's denying that. But uh, fundamentally, they have not made rides cheaper. They're cheaper because um, Uber takes a loss on every ride. But the underlying costs there are basically the same as taxis uh, because they have all the same constraints um, that they face. Uh, and so the cost to our economy is the same. And so finally, I think you're seeing... Um, public markets say, like, look, ultimately you need to be creating economic value um, in some way. You need to be making the delivery of goods and services um, cheaper per unit of uh, capital employed. And a lot of those businesses really aren't showing how they're going to do that yet. And public markets are calling shenanigans on it. Felicity, we've got in our global portfolio, we've got a number of these exponential stocks and they've really done well for us. But it's been on the basis of how are they doing exactly what you've discussed, how are they creating economic value. If you are making a long-term bet or if you're investing like Amazon does in its infrastructure and you are knowing, you know you can, you, you'll get the network effect and it'll be, it'll be a huge positive in the future and much like Google, uh, then you, you can invest in those companies. But what what happened with Google and with, um, well, less so with Amazon, but with, certainly with Google was that they did their homework first. They pro proved the business model. Only then did they come to the market. Facebook was exactly the same. They came to the market when it was easy to see that this business model was going to be throwing off cash and indeed has continued to. Facebook sits with margins of 50%, Google with margins of 30%. Whereas with WeWork, it was it had a lot of the promise potentially, but zero of the of the cash flow. And, and Warren Buffett tells us and reminds us continuously that we must the value the value of a company is how much cash you can get back from it between now and doomsday. And that's really the place that you've got to start. And I, I remember um, many years ago during the nineteen ninety seven boom. Jack Shapiro, who used to be one of our market commentators, he's passed on now, but Jack was looking at one of the companies that was uh, very highly rated at the time, and he said, you know, this company is sitting on a price-to-earnings ratio of over 100. He said, I'm not going to live for another 100 years, and I cannot see that even in 100 years, whoever invests today is going to be getting their money back. And as, Well, he was dead right. That company uh, didn't last for more than a couple more years. I think it was computer configurations, which ironically was um, financial director. There was Rob Shooter, who's now the CEO of MTN. So it just shows uh, people can, can change their spots and move on from there. But it, is a, it, it was a very, very clear warning that when you do have these promises into the future, just make sure that the company that you're talking about has actually got a business model that can deliver profits and can deliver the returns that you as a shareholder need because that's really the only reason why you're investing in a company. You're not investing in a company so that you can boast that uh, you have a, a share or a slice of a business that has got a wonderful brand and uh, has got great community management, etc. You're investing in a business because of what it can deliver to you in uh, the longer term and that if you if you misread that and you misguide that, then all you're doing is investing in a Ponzi scheme and thinking that you can sell your shares at some point to a greater fool. And that's not investing. 
Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. Um, remember, you can read a summary of this interview up on the premium section of Business. You can join premiums as £5 a month, and that is going to give you access to our great content and full digital access to the Wall Street Journal.